Okay, let's see, can we turn the front lights off? Uh, Okay, so we're going to talk about respiratory distress and uh, different types of respiratory distress and how to evaluate them and manage them in the emergency room. So let's start with the upper airway and I'm going to give you some examples and talk about them. And here's the most common cause of acute strider that may come into the emergency room. which precedes cyanosis and demand early intervention. Observe the very marked respiratory effort she needs to make in order to overcome the obstruction. Despite her efforts to breathe, the stridor is quite soft, suggesting that the obstruction is very tight. It's important to appreciate this point. Okay, uh, I think some of the, the major point, takeaway points here are uh, this is a clinical assessment. Uh, this is not something that oximetry, blood gases, laboratory tests, uh, lateral neck films are going to help you with. By the time someone with upper airway obstruction becomes hypoxemic, okay, they're in extremis and they need emergency intubation. Uh, so it's very important to assess clinically here, very different from lower airway obstruction where the oximetry can be of considerable value in giving you an idea as to what's going on. So this is, a, this is croup, croup uh, laryngotracheal bronchitis. And croup, by the way, uh, does not mean a croupy cough. Croupy cough is not croup. Croup is laryngotracheal bronchitis. It's got to have the laryngo portion Otherwise, it doesn't meet the criteria for croup. And it's, uh, the definition is transient inflammation of the laryngeal area causing upper airway obstruction characterized by inspiratory stridor and is generally from viruses. It's commonly associated with inflammation of the tracheal bronchi and hence that full name of laryngotracheal bronchitis. Uh, the etiologic agents are uh, many different common cold viruses. Uh, there's no characteristic difference between the various ones, and it includes RSV. So a clinical assessment of croup is uh, strider, and in assessing it, is it only when they're agitated? Is it continuous? And as that video showed, uh, it's quieter as obstruction increases. Are there retractions? Are they just intercostal? Are they super and substernal? Is the patient agitated? Are they getting tired? That's uh, if they're agitated and uh, showing signs of fatigue, that's a sign for an urgent PICU admission where someone can do a controlled intubation should that be necessary, which is not common with croup, but it can happen. And of course, if they're cyanotic, uh, you know, intubate them. 
treatment, uh, antibiotics are not appropriate, it's viral, and so the issues are aerosolized epinephrine and corticosteroids, and let's look at some of the data for that. Here's a study that was done quite a number of years ago, but it's still a valid study, aerosol epinephrine for epinephrine, uh, for croup, uh, and uh, there were 10 patients who got a saline placebo, uh, 10 who got racemic epinephrine, and this is pretty typical. Uh, so looking at a croup score, uh, there is rapid and transient improvement, and it uh, uh, gradually returns to a baseline. Epinephrine uh, has a very short duration of action, uh, but I, I sometimes hear the myth that you don't want to use it because there's rebound. There's no rebound, it just wears off and they may get back to where they were. Uh, but it does provide relief and it does buy time. It does mean that, of course, that just because they're relieved doesn't mean you then send them out of the emergency room because you don't know what's going to happen uh, over the next couple of hours and, in fact, it may return to previous symptoms. Uh, and here's the placebo. So it's a definite effect. It's real. You can give it repeatedly. Uh, it can certainly buy time, keep a patient out of the PICU. Uh, but it's not uh, uh, having, it, it's not altering the clinical course in general. On the other hand, dexamethasone has been uh, well studied, uh, and this is one of several studies, this one from the Journal of Pediatrics, uh, looking at dexamethasone, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, uh, and uh, they were getting, in this case, aerosolized epinephrine on a PRN basis, 13 patients with placebo, 16 with dexamethasone, and over uh, a 12-hour period, uh, there was uh, dramatic improvement, and the improvement uh, was sustained. Uh, and these are patients that were hospitalized for croup, uh, and here it is with the placebo. So there's a very definite effect, and there's more than one study demonstrating that. There's some controversy about the dose. Uh, I've seen one recent study uh, that said that 0.15 milligrams per kilogram uh, had the same effect, but I'm more impressed by an older uh, analysis which looked at uh, uh, varying doses of dexamethasone, and at one point there was controversy as to whether or not dexamethasone really was beneficial. And then someone took a whole bunch of the studies that had been done and showed that the ones that had given uh, less than 0.5 milligrams per kilogram uh, as, a, as an initial dose uh, didn't show benefit, and those that gave at least 0.5 milligrams per kilogram uh, as an as initial dose uh, did show uh, this type of benefit. So I was impressed by that, which was an analysis of multiple studies, and I'm uh, therefore skeptical of this more recent study that came out of Australia that said 0.15 milligrams per kilogram uh, was adequate. Considering how benign a, this single dose is, I would go with the higher dose. I think it makes sense. I think there's more data to support that. Um, yeah? PO is, good. PO is fine. Yeah. Uh, whatever works. I mean, if the patient is, you know, it depends how much distress they're on, whether or not you think they're going to retain it. But yes, it, it, the, the difference in onset of action is going to be, you know, less than half an hour because it's rapidly absorbed. Uh, so that's, that previous study uh, was done in hospitalized patients, and then a more recent study uh, looked at patients who were not bad enough to be hospitalized, but they were discharged to home. And uh, similar dose and similar schedule, uh, 19 patients uh, 
on placebo and the dexamethasone, again, double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And what they're looking here is the symptoms at 24 hours. These were patients not as bad as the others, the previous study. They didn't have to be hospitalized. Uh, it was decided they could be sent home out of the emergency room. And uh, what you see here is uh, on the dexamethasone, uh, most of them either resolved or improved, uh, whereas on the placebo, uh, far more of them were the same. Now, again, you're dealing with milder patients, so quite a number of these patients did improve spontaneously, but clearly for, you know, a very benign single-dose medication that has virtually no known risk, uh, you are uh, substantially increasing the likelihood that the patient is going to be better over the next 24 hours. So I think these studies have uh, uh, essentially uh, set the standard of care. Uh, I think this is the appropriate thing to do. Uh, so, basic principles for ER management. Minimal disturbance, agitation increases the symptoms. Don't sedate them, even if they are, if they are agitated, use that as a warning sign. Just like that child, that very irritable child you saw there, the irritability is a sign of anxiety, which is caused by hypoxemia. So use that as a warning sign, don't sedate them. That's dangerous, uh, bad things happen when you do that. Monitor the retractions, the vital signs, uh, pulse oximetry, but keep in mind that unlike lower airway disease, the pulse oximetry is going to change. Uh, when it goes down, it means they're really in big trouble very quickly. You can't correct it just with oxygen. I mean, the oxygen may make them less hypoxemic, uh, but if that means their airway is about ready to close up. Uh, racemic epinephrine, uh, why racemic? That just happens to be what's been on the U.S. market for uh, uh, epinephrine aerosol. If we had the non-racemic, uh, uh, the active uh, isomer, uh, that would work fine too. Uh, but this is the standard dose, half an mL diluted to 3 mL by nebulizer. Uh, dexamethasone at least 0.5 milligrams per kilogram by whatever route you think is most appropriate in the individual patient. Uh, and of course, if the respiratory distress uh, uh, persists, uh, you admit them. Now, uh, this is a very interesting study that came out of the Toronto Sick Children's Hospital, which has very big emergency room service, uh, and looking at group hospitalizations over a 14-year uh, time series. Uh, and what we're looking at is here, I think, is the influence of the combination of aerosolized epinephrine and dexamethasone. Uh, so the frequency of having to hospitalize patients with croup is much, much less than, uh, for instance, when I was back in training as a, a pediatric resident or even as a fellow. Uh, so uh, th this has made a real impact. and. Uh, uh, emphasizes that these that there is good evidence-based medicine to indicate you know this is really the standard of care it makes a difference is what that's a good question uh, to my knowledge it's not been studied uh, generally, croup is a, is a self-limited illness. Dexamethasone is a uh, much longer-acting corticosteroid than prednisolone. Would prednisone or prednisolone work just as well? Well, probably, but it hasn't been studied, but it is shorter-acting. Um, dexamethasone is, happens to be what was studied, and it seems like, you know, the single dose uh, is adequate. Uh, 
if the patient you know, got better and started getting worse, and, I, and I've seen occasion, you know, rare occasions where the kind of croup gets worse again. Yeah, I'd give another dose of dexamethasone. But yeah, I think you really have to do it. He breathes at all times through a widely opened mouth. Characteristically, at no stage does he swallow, and although it's not evident on the screen, saliva was seen pooling in his mouth. Listen to the low-pitched snoring, the inspiratory and expiratory noise, contrasted to the higher-pitched stridor of croup. The posture of this child is typical. He prefers to sit upright. As soon as his head drops forward, he wakes. Note the absence of cough. Okay. Uh, you probably haven't seen one of these, and I haven't seen one in many, many years. Uh, but this is epiglottitis, a uh, classical picture, uh, something I think we're all happy we don't see too much of anymore. It was predominantly due to uh, uh, Haemophilus influenza group B, uh, which uh, the Hib vaccine has largely eliminated. Uh, however, I've seen a case uh, from uh, uh, beta, strep group, uh, beta strep group A, uh, and so there's still the, the, it still may occur. Uh, and it's important to uh, recognize the difference between this and croup. And I think seeing it makes it very apparent there's no resemblance. Uh, one, these kids don't cough, the croups cough, uh, the noise is different. And so I think the, uh, the kind of practice I sometimes see when a kid comes in with croup, you know, well, let's make sure it's not epiglottitis, let's get a lateral neck film. Uh, here again, knowing what it looks like you know, there's really no resemblance. Croup looks like croup. This is a different sound, different clinical picture, toxic appearance. The other girl wasn't toxic. She's just irritable because she couldn't breathe. Uh, this is, of course, very dangerous. This requires uh, uh, essentially emergency intubation because they can totally obstruct at, at any minute. Uh, here's a picture of what it looks like. There's the normal uh, epiglottis and airway and there's this, uh, what you see if you go look. And once this completely obstructs, uh, even if you've got less than a minute to, uh, and they're not easy to intubate because you've got this big thing in the way there. So, uh, important to recognize the difference. Uh, it's uncommon. Uh, it's not real likely that maybe you're going to see one of these, but it's, it's very important to recognize it and distinguish it from croup when it occurs, and not worry about croup being this, because that's different. So epiglottitis is a bacterial infection of the superglottis with life-threatening airway obstruction. I should correct the spelling on that one, by the swollen epiglottis. Uh, it's most commonly in the past from H. flu, group B, but can also occur from strep pyogenes. Uh, it's a medical emergency to establish an airway. Antibiotics are indicated here. So let's go on to another cause of upper airway obstruction.
looking through a flexible oringoscope here, and we're looking at the epiglottis. And you got this, this is an infant in this case, with Strider. Notice the epiglottis was collapsing. And uh, here's another picture. I don't have sound on this one, but it shows a different pattern of this. And you'll see on inspiration, the arytenoids are being sucked into the airway. And again, I don't have the sound on this one, but it would make the same noise. So there's different patterns of this. Uh, uh, and they may end up in emergency room. This is not an acute problem. This tends to be a more of an ongoing problem. This is laryngomalacia. But sometimes they end up in an emergency room because the child gets a cold and it worsens. Uh, and of course, if they're always making this noise to some extent, but now it's worsened, uh, uh, it, can, you know, it could be confused with croup. There's certainly no harm in treating it as croup because there might be a croup component overlying the, uh, uh, the underlying laryngomalacia. Uh, this is, uh, uh, in most cases, a benign condition, but sometimes it does require uh, surgical intervention. So it's common to varying degrees. About 60% of strider in infants is due to uh, laryngomalacia. Uh, represents a delay in maturation of supporting laryngeal structures generally resolves by two years of age. Uh, rare cases do result in pulmonary hypertension, but those are very rare, probably one in a thousand or less. Uh, and in, uh, when it's severe enough, laser laryngoplasty by our uh, very capable pediatric ENT people uh, uh, can uh, uh, essentially fix the problem. Uh, and that's warranted only in severe cases where it's affecting feeding or growth. Uh, when we identify it with uh, flexible laryngoscopy, uh, we essentially make a clinical judgment as to how severe it is. And of course, if they're not gaining weight, we're going to have our ENT people see them and consider a, laryngo a laryngoplasty. Uh, uh, sometimes if they just have continuous airway, continuous increased work of breathing, are often impressed by that. If they're having continuous increased work of breathing, we'll uh, consider laryngoplasty. Uh, it's probably maybe 1% of the ones we see at a referral center here end up with the laryngoplasty. So it's not common, but it is something that, you know, I would say we have at least a couple of year that end up with laryngoplasty. Now, some other causes of Strider. This is a, uh, a functional cause, and it's one that uh, tends to be misdiagnosed in emergency rooms. Uh, there's quite a number of reports of, the, of this entity uh, called asthma in an emergency room. This is a teenage girl. I'm not, okay. Okay, now open your eyes and look in there. As we are breathing there, the sound points are absorbed in the open place. Swallow. Nice, slow, deep breath. Okay. And notice when you exhale, they open up. When you inhale, you make a noise. You see how they're going together? That's the problem. They're supposed to open when you inhale. Okay. I want you to say something and watch, make them move. 
Okay, this is a 15-year-old girl uh, who, for uh, three weeks earlier, uh, had, this was during the summer, and uh, uh, she uh, took a job detasseling. All of you know what detasseling is? You're all Iowans? Okay. <laughs> I talk about this outside of Iowa, no one knows what that is. Uh, and she uh, uh, had acute respiratory distress like this, ended up uh, in the emergency room. Uh, and it was diagnosed as laryngeal edema, and they uh, gave her a shot of epinephrine, and she got better. She went out again the next day uh, and uh, tried uh, detasseling. The same thing happened. So she got the message, and she stopped detasseling. But she continued every day to have episodes of the same thing, but it didn't respond, no longer responded to epinephrine. Uh, she was treated, uh, she was still going to the emergency room, so they were treating her as asthma. Her primary care physician was giving her all sorts of asthma medications, nothing was working. And we saw her. And uh, since she said that uh, this was often brought on now by exercise, by any exertion, uh, we wanted to reproduce the symptoms. She was fine when, at the moment she came in. Uh, and so here's her pre-exercise spirometry. And here's her post-exercise spirometry. So even though this had been called wheezing repeatedly by our primary care physician and the emergency room she was going to, uh, in fact, it wasn't expiratory wheezing. It was, if you want to call it inspiratory wheezing, or essentially it's a type of strider. Uh, so this is upper airway obstruction, uh, in this case induced by exercise. Uh, interestingly, she did have a positive uh, prick skin test to corn pollen, so this explained those first two episodes that responded to epinephrine, uh, but she, corn pollen doesn't carry, it's essentially an occupational thing, it doesn't carry very far in the wind, unlike other types of pollen. So it, it carries enough to pollinate, but it doesn't carry probably m less than 100 yards, unlike other pollens. Uh, so the treadmill exercise induced this wheezing sound that you heard, uh, which was really strider. Uh, it's normal pre-exercise, decreased flow only on inspiration, and essentially this is diagnostic of extrathoracic airway obstruction. So uh, if at any time someone who had given her all these different asthma medications had done simple spirometry, uh, they would have, or even paid attention to whether the noise was inspiratory or expiratory, uh, they would have had a suspicion that this wasn't really consistent with asthma. Uh, and uh, I find that not everyone uh, in the emergency room, people in the emergency room keep forgetting about this, but you have access to spirometry. Okay? Respiratory therapy is on call to come down with a portable spirometer and they can do this for you. So. When something seems atypical and you think it may be helpful to you diagnostically, make use of the service. It can be quite helpful. Say he. He. 
You can barely see her airway. It's uh, maybe about a two millimeter opening there. So what you've seen now are two variations of uh, what's called the vocal cord dysfunction syndrome. The first one just had paradoxical movement of the vocal cords. That is, on inspiration, the vocal cords closed, where on inspiration they're supposed to open to allow free open and air. And then they relax on expiration. Uh, this patient essentially had, had clamped down her vocal cords her vocal cords and even her false vocal cords. Essentially, they were in spasm, and so she was moving air through a very, very small uh, opening, which was even hard to see on there. Now, let's look at uh, her pulmonary function. And uh, uh, hers was, uh, uh, to induce her, she came in, and uh, uh, this is, she had completely normal pulmonary function and was asymptomatic when we first saw her with this history of recurrent episodes, emergency room visits, 911 calls. Uh, uh, and uh, we wanted to, uh, again, all we had was a history, so it wasn't clear what was going on, but it sounded very atypical for asthma. And of course, she'd been treated for asthma and had all sorts of medications for it. Uh, and so we thought we would do a uh, uh, histamine bronchoprovocation uh, which is uh, essentially histamine and, and methacholine are, are two ways of inducing uh, or measuring the, the degree of airway reactivity. Uh, and we never got to do that because as we were lining things up, just lining them up and getting ready to do it, she started in with that exactly what you heard there and she, her pulmonary function went to that. So what she has now is both marked inspiratory and expiratory uh, function. But this looks nothing at all like you see in asthma. In asthma, the inspiratory portion stays relatively normal. It may decrease a bit, uh, but you get this marked uh, scooping uh, concavity to the uh, flow volume loop, to the expiratory portion of the flow volume loop, uh, where she uh, essentially gets a rapid uh, you know, peak flow uh, and then just you know, gets down to almost no flow at all. So this wheezing, which was actually a high-pitched inspiratory strider and a monophonic expiratory wheeze, it really doesn't sound like an asthmatic, the, the polyphonic asthmatic wheeze. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, with dyspnea began while preparing to perform the bronchoprovocation. Uh, and it was initially normal, uh, and then you had severe air flow obstruction, just as you saw. So vocal cord dysfunction syndrome is commonly misdiagnosed as asthma. Uh, the, uh, while there were scattered peculiar case reports through the literature, uh, it was a report out of Denver at the National Jewish Hospital uh, that uh, described this uh, uh, common misdiagnosis asthma, uh, often as severe intractable asthma because, of course, they don't respond to asthmatic medications. It may be present along with asthma, which gets confusing, uh, doesn't respond to pharmacotherapy. The differential diagnosis then of inspiratory strider is uh, uh, it's the sign of extra, inspiratory strider is a sign of extrathoracic airway obstruction. Uh, causes of acute onset inspiratory strider include croup, can also be angioedema, which generally will be associated also with facial lip or tongue, tongue edema, 
epiglottitis, which is a different sound as you heard. Uh, one thing I didn't demonstrate here, it's relatively uncommon and, and can be difficult to recognize, and that's a bacterial tracheitis. Cough in that case is most prominent. Differing from croup, uh, they do have a, a coarse strider uh, because uh, it, it tends to involve the extrathoracic portion of the trachea in addition to the intrathoracic portion. Uh, and so they do get some striderous sounds. They do tend to be uh, more toxic than in croup. Uh, and so it might be confused with, uh, with epiglottitis. Uh, the only way to prove it is really to go down and look at the airway with a flexible bronchoscope and what you see is the airway is just coated with pus and uh, I mean, of course when you culture it there's uh, lots of bacteria there. Uh, not a common entity but it's something to think about because the, the presentation is different. It's kind of halfway between croup and epiglottitis in its presentation. Uh, of course you can have a laryngeal or esophageal foreign body and of course the vocal cord dysfunction syndrome. Question? Yeah. The vocal cord dysfunction. Hmm? The vocal cord dysfunction, but they're coming in to us looking like asthma, difficulty breathing, and so forth. I mean, I would always, I think, go down the asthma pathway. I mean, is there a treatment, though, that if we are suspicious of that, that we would do? <laughs> I think the most. Like, you know, unlike asthma, though, they don't. They have, you know, they have inspiratory striker, yeah. you know, typically, or they could have both, you know, sounds, yeah. and yeah. so. Yeah. I think the biggest favor you can do for the patient is uh, to have an index of suspicion that it's not asthma. Okay. okay. What do we do? Yeah, call RT and have them do spirometry and see if there's. And then if we get that. If you get that, if you get that upper airway obstruction pattern, if you get the inspiratory portion of the flow volume loop is flattened. I, I still have a hard time like not doing anything because they're coming in with respiratory kind of distress of some form. Uh, right, but these patients are not, what happens is they over and over and over again, they're treated as asthma, and what you really want to do is identify that that episode is not asthma. That's the most important thing. It's more important than any treatment. So, so they must be responding to the treatment to some extent if they're being discharged home. Uh, well, these, th these episodes often tend to be self-limited. Uh, they don't continue. By far the most common cause of some of the kids, a, a teenager, so outside the group age, having strider, you know. I mean, it's teenagers coming in. I'm almost, this is my first, unfortunately, my first thing is that this is probably vocal cord dysfunction. Yeah. That's where it's coming to for me. Yeah. Now, you have to make think of other things, you know, they don't have fever usually. They don't have other, you know. Yeah. And generally their oximetry is completely normal. Which, which helps you. With asthma that's causing a lot of respiratory distress, you usually get some degree of ventilation perfusion mismatching and the oximetry is down to some extent. So if they come in and it's inspiratory and the oximetry is normal, you can do a tremendous favor to us eventually evaluating this patient by getting spirometry. Because otherwise we're trying to sort it out later on by history you know, they're coming in electively and, you know, and, and we're trying to sort out just by the history. And uh, uh, if we have some, some hard documentation in the emergency room, it's tremendously helpful about knowing what to do with it. And so there's no danger of losing the airway there? No. no. Again, the oximetry is, is completely normal in these patients. Which a two millimeter airway on scope, and, and to 
me that just scares me where it's like, boy, this airway is really occluded and they've got an upper airway strider and they're not doing well, but yeah. just just get a spirometer and, and send them home because it's just... You know, I airway. see people doing all kinds of stuff with these kids. Yeah. I go in that room, what I'll start doing is start doing some, some vocal cord and, and some have them start saying words and having them start doing some words. And when they, they can do, a lot of times they'll be able to talk for a few things and then as soon as they stop talking, they don't have it, and then as soon as they stop talking, they're right doing it again. Kind of have them trying to do some relaxation, opening their mouth. It's hard to do it, but they're opening their mouth a lot, it seems like to me. Have them start breathing with their uh, mouth. And they won't do it. They'll, they'll keep it up. And you have to kind of help, you know, encourage them and force them almost to, to, to breathe an open mouth. It becomes hard. And then, or they'll start doing this. They'll start putting their head down to be able to maintain that obstruction. So you kind of leave them, make sure they stay, keep their head up mouth open, it's really hard to create that. It's hard. It at least seems like it, that starts getting them to relax, start realizing it isn't. That's right. And notice when I, when I asked her to talk, when I asked her to say words, uh, it was hard to see because it was quick. Yeah, she started moving her vocal cords. <laughs> they opened. And the worst, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, okay, they get hypoxic, they lose consciousness. As soon as they lose consciousness, airways, it's, it's going to relax. So there really is no danger. There really is no danger. <laughs> they, no one's ever died from this. So, yeah. I don't know. It seems like it's very, it's very, very, I don't know. It's very evasive to the treatment for this. Like, are we saying this is a psychiatric diagnosis? Is that why why we're being so evasive on what we do for these people? Or like, like, I think like we come if somebody comes in and they're in respiratory distress with strider and wheezing, like, I'm not going to just talk them down like they're suicidal, you know? Like, I want to... I do that. <laughs> I think if they are set, O2 sets are okay, and on lung auscultation, they have inspiratory wheezing, we're saying having high index of suspicion for this. Sure, if you're nervous, drag in the intubation cart, tell the nurse to get out, get off, and get spirometry first. If it's a teenager, O2 sets okay and then inspiratory strider. Get try to relax them, talk to them, but have respiratory come in strong. So these these kids come in and look pretty good. They're what? They come in, they look good. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. These were both 15-year-old girls. Uh, again, but, but you know that second one had had 911 called over and over again. You go to the literature and look up some of these cases. Some of them have been intubated. Some have had trachs done. Yeah. So there's a real danger of hurting them by trying to treat them. There's a real, I mean, that's, that's the bigger danger here is the medical treatment. So it becomes very important and, you know, you can, you can help us out tremendously, you know, by getting some data that supports the diagnosis at the time they're having the acute episode because we're often not seeing them during the acute episode. We're trying to sort it out by history. And, uh, you know, it's very frustrating when you look and you say, well, they were wheezing, but no one mentioned whether it was inspiratory or expiratory. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, well, a lot of intervention, a lot of IVs, other medications given during this. And so eventually, like often happens, if you don't do anything, they get better. And, um, and they have, think they have to have that. So that's why the next time they do call 911 and people say, boy, you're, you know, so everybody's so concerned in emergency room, they get more concerned and just kind of almost like self-fulfilling. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. We live in, we live or we work in a place though where your diagnosis and your treatment are going on at the same time. You know, like you're not. You, well, you, 
What else do you think? What else do you think they might have? If they don't have facial edema, you don't think this is an anaphylactic reaction. They don't have fever, you don't think there's an infectious process or something. And you look at the area, they don't have a big peritonsillar abscess or something like that. What else could, what do you think else they could have? Their O2 sat's fine. There's really nothing else that they could have. It's important to think of this because these patients are done harm by excessive treatment. By, uh, and so that's why I showed it here because uh, these are real things. And again, uh, getting RT down there, if you want to give them albuterol first, it doesn't matter if you give them something, whether epinephrine or albuterol, that's not going to hurt them. But meanwhile, get RT down there at the same time and have them do spirometry with a maximal inspiratory flow volume loop. Make sure they know to do that to get a maximal inspiratory effort because they don't always do that. Often they're just looking at expiratory. And, and then you'll, you'll make a diagnosis. And, you know, we can talk about how to treat this, but uh, uh, essentially the treatment uh, for the spontaneously occurring ones is uh, uh, a, uh, a knowledgeable speech pathologist uh, teaches them how to take voluntary control over the vocal cords. That's got a high success rate. Uh, the ones that are brought on by exercise, uh, which is a very common variant, uh, we have uh, uncontrolled but impressive uh, data uh, that we can prevent those. Uh, this is, we see this a lot in teenage athletes, uh, that an anticholinergic bronchodilator, uh, ipratropium, uh, seems to prevent it. doesn't treat it once it's there, so don't, don't bother with that in the emergency room. But uh, they can use an ipratropium, essentially an atrovent inhaler, before exercise. And we've had a very high success rate in blocking that. And there is some uh, data on what the pathophysiologic mechanism might be. And it makes sense. It seems to be, you know, there's evidence that it's vaguely mediated phenomena. Why it occurs in some patients, I mean, you know, uh, mind-body interactions are we still don't know a lot about them, and this is obviously one of them. They're not necessarily, you know, major psychiatric problems. These patients don't necessarily have other somatization problems. They're not crazy. Uh, functional disorders are not, you know, are often very, very limited to one system. Yeah. Do you see this more in girls? Yes. We've seen it mostly in uh, adolescents and some pre-adolescents. I haven't seen it in younger kids. If you, see, uh, if you see it, I mean, there are some uncommon reasons, very uncommon reasons uh, for Strider also that you might get suspicious of in young kids. And I don't have it on here, but I've got, uh, uh, we, we just published in the October issue of Pediatrics a uh, uh, article on pseudo-asthma syndromes. And, uh, uh, one unusual thing we've seen, and that is described in the literature, uh, is uh, uh, as a cause of uh, Strider at any age, interestingly, uh, is Chiari 1 malformations. Uh, and you can, some people live with them all their life, you know, essentially where the, the tonsils are you know, protruding somewhat down uh, into the foramen magnum, uh, creating some pressure. And uh, we had an 18 month old uh, that had that, that was having intermittent strider when she would try to go to sleep. During the day she seemed perfectly fine. 
and uh, you know, she ended up needing some uh, neurosurgical decompression. And when I went through the literature, there's descriptions there of adults even, you know, suddenly, you know, starting to have it. They've probably had the, the malformation all their life, but for some reason or other, it starts becoming manifest. So this is an uncommon cause. So if something doesn't make sense, you know, and it's happening and it doesn't seem like vocal cord, you know, a functional disorder, uh, then a, a head MRI is a thing to do. Uh, those are rare, I mean, but they, but they're, they're occur and they described. Uh, so a different noise. Note <coughs> the retraction of the lower ribs. Okay, this is, of course, going back to common things now. Uh, this is a baby with bronchiolitis. The term bronchiolitis uh, should be limited to the first episode of a viral, in a viral infection inducing lower airway obstruction in an infant. So, uh, I've sometimes seen, you know, a three-year-old diagnosed as bronchiolitis. That is not bronchiolitis. It's got to be an infant, and it's got to be the very first episode. If they've had previous episodes, it's not bronchiolitis. Uh, so the symptoms of lower airway disease, of course, are wheezing. This child was having expiratory wheezing, polyphonic expiratory wheezing. Cough is typical. Retractions increase work of breathing. They often have crackles, fine and coarse, and... and uh, uh, it's because there's mucus in the airway and the mucus rattles around and it'll sound different whether it's in large or small airways. Uh, they have a prolonged expiratory phase that's kidneyic uh, and they have hypoxemic, uh, hypoxemia early on, unlike upper airway obstruction where hypoxemia is very late in a near terminal event. Uh, and that's because they've got ventilation perfusion mismatching. Uh, and if the airway obstruction becomes progressively worse, they can become hypercapneic, and of course that's a danger sign. That's respiratory failure, and if they're not responding quickly, they need to be in the PICU. So examples of lower airway disease include uh, inflammatory airway diseases and anatomic airway abnormalities and parenchymal disease uh, and factitious hyperventilation. Uh, bronchiolitis, uh, Viral respiratory infection induced lower airway obstruction in an infant. Asthma, which the symptoms are the same. The difference, asthma is a diagnosis you make when it's been occurring repeatedly. That's the only difference. Uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, less common. Aspiration, uh, bronchiolitis obliterans, uh, a much less common disorder. Uh, anatomic abnormalities that can cause uh, lower airway obstruction, tracheomalacia, bronchomalacia, vascular ring, which really is kind of doing the same thing as causing tracheomalacia. Uh, and then an unusual disorder, stovepipe trachea, which is where the cartilaginous rings of the airway are, uh, uh, instead of being C-shaped, they're circular, and the airway doesn't grow, and they start getting uh, progressive uh, airway obstruction. And then parenchymal diseases, uh, pneumonias, including bacterial, viral, allergic pneumonias. Uh, so I, I'm going to focus just on these two. These are, can be subjects all on their own. 
Uh, it's just important to keep in mind there are other less common causes. So these are the most common causes. And uh, we're getting much branchiolitis coming in yet. We should be in the season. Yeah. Yeah. So the virus is associated with bronchiolitis. Of course, we commonly think of RSV. Uh, uh, but this is, this is some older data, and we're now finding uh, one of the problems is RSV was, is easy to diagnose. Rhinovirus in the past has been, you don't have a simple diagnostic test. But now that uh, there's been studies coming out using PCR, uh, polymerized chain reaction, to diagnose rhinovirus, and rhinovirus is a very common cause of uh, uh, bronchiolitis also. Uh, and uh, causes identical symptoms. Uh, so uh, how do you treat bronchiolitis in the emergency room? Well, this has become very controversial. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the controversy. I'm not going to give you a definite answer. You'll have to decide what to do. Uh, Dr. Shu is a pediatric emergency room physician at Toronto Sick Child Children's. She's done a lot of very nice studies. And this was in the Journal of Pediatrics. and. Uh, uh, despite the fact that there had been a number of studies earlier showing that corticosteroids were not of value for bronchiolitis, uh, she used a very high dose, initial dose of a milligram per kilogram of dexamethasone and showed in a double-blind placebo-controlled trial it decreased the decision, to, a four-hour decision to hospitalize by greater than 50 percent. Uh, there were 70 children all under two months of age, I'm sorry, under two years of age, uh, mean age was six and a half months, so it was the age where you see a lot of bronchiolitis. First episode of viral respiratory infection induced lower airway obstruction. She tried to get them to meet the criteria. So randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, oral dexamethasone or placebo, blinded decision to hospitalize at four hours, and 44% were hospitalized in the placebo group, and only 19% the dexamethasone group. Seems like very impressive data. Uh, the, uh, uh, and uh, there's been quite a number of data uh, looking at uh, albuterol and racemic epinephrine, uh, and uh, some of them have shown some relief from one, some of them have shown some relief from the other. No studies have shown that these alter the course, that they alter the decision to hospitalize, the duration of hospitalization once they're hospitalized, so it provides some short-term symptomatic relief for some patients. Uh, but this data was very intriguing, and it led to a very large multi-center uh, study that was published recently that uh, came out in the New England Journal of Medicine just this past year. Uh, and here's, uh, and what they, again, what they, 